Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) Normally, here you would hear Paula say that she is a licensed professional counselor and a counseling professor and a person of Christian faith. However, this happens to be the last week of classes, and so Paula is very hard at work. So I'm excited to welcome our guest co-host, Andrew. Hello, Jill. How are you? Among many other things, Andrew happens to be my spouse. That's correct. You're stuck with me. <laughs> However, you are doing this by choice. I didn't force yeah, oh, you into oh, yeah. this. Oh, certainly. Yes. Most definitely. So as we're getting started, we just wanted to say that Sacred Intersections podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to get you to think like us. We just want you to think. That is our agenda. Neither of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives. We don't speak on behalf of mental health care professionals and practitioners, people of faith, Jesus followers, white people, Americans, or backyard chicken farmers. Because we have, we have chickens. Because we have chickens, yes. Yeah. Yes, we, we are backyard chicken farmers. We have three chickens. Our, in our small, little, uh, our small little field backyard. Yes, we do. And their names are? Uh, we, we lovingly uh, have named, our, and purposely have named our chickens after uh, the strong women of uh, the TV show Parks and Recreation. Uh, unfortunately, we did lose a chicken uh, over the years. And so we, we now have uh, Leslie, uh, April, and Ann Perkins. They are strong women, and we love them a lot. Yes. One of these days, I would love to have uh, another chicken that I can uh, name Shauna Mulway Tweep, because I I just love that name. (laughs) So, returning from that little side road, Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion, spirituality, mental health, and all of the ways that intersect. Paula and I were having these kinds of conversations, and we decided to record and share them, and sometimes we rope other people into having those conversations with us, like you. Thank you for having me. We're glad. And thank you, Paula, for for giving me the opportunity to be here. We are glad you're along for the journey, even if you listeners or you, Andrew, are traveling different roads or driving different vehicles than we are. So um, our episode today is uh, that we're going to be talking a little bit about mission trips, specifically teenage mission trips. Teenage missions, yes. Uh, and I will say right from the outset, Jill Jill does a wonderful job, and Jill and Paula always do a wonderful job of giving uh, sort of a disclaimer uh, about who they are and, and where they uh, hope that they will stand on any given topic that they talk about uh, in a podcast. But I will give my own disclaimer right up front. Um, I, I am not as wonderful at uh, being objective as Jill and Paula are. So unfortunately, what you're going to hear from me uh, is some opinion, um, and it may not be as objective as you usually hear. And I hope that you'll listen, uh, you'll hear what I have to say, uh, and, and take uh, what is meaningful to you and, and uh, builds you up and throw away what doesn't. And we always say that we're interested in hearing from you, whether you agree with us or whether you disagree with us, with a, a little disclaimer that we would so appreciate if you were nice when you disagree with us, because nobody, nobody likes it when people are mean to them. But 
Um, please let us know about your own experiences if you have experience with mission trips or teenage mission trips in general. But uh, someone intentionally, Andrew, has had uh, some some pretty significant experiences with missions, specifically teenage mission trips. And so we thought it'd be a good thing to talk about the ways that mental health and spirituality and religion intersect on that topic. So, uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about an overview of your mission experiences as a teenager. Yes. And, and I, I suppose maybe we should take just a, a small step back and say, we're specifically talking about Christian, uh, mission trips, uh, teenage Christian, um, uh, mission trips and, so I know I had some some specific experiences in my life as a teenager. So Rhodes, I may have shared, I grew up in what's called the Reformed Church in America, which is very similar to the Presbyterian Church. It's a Reformed faith, and uh, it, uh, nerd alert, it stretches its roots from the Netherlands, from the Dutch people, and... Uh, so the church that I grew up in did engage in youth mission trips or teenage mission trips. We used a lot of a program called group work camps where we would go to places that needed actual work done like um, painting or building a wheelchair ramp or re- roofing sometimes relatively work that teenagers couldn't hurt themselves on too terribly or make people's lives worse too terribly. So that was my mission trip experience, but you had a very different. Well, yeah, I, I feel like there are sort of two camps. There are the the folks who grew up uh, in a Christian church setting, you know, and as teenagers or as young people, they went to uh, sort of a work-minded, they went on sort of a work-minded mission trip where they would, you know, build or or deconstruct something I know in, in your work as a uh, youth minister, you did many um, work-minded mission trips when, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. So the, the second camp, uh, though, is uh, what I would call evangelical. Uh, and, and I don't use that word evangelical in its current political context. That's a word that has a lot of uh, political connotation now. Um, but I, but I truly mean it. Uh, I, I use it truly to mean the folks or, or the the Christians uh, who uh, practice what they call preaching the gospel to to unchurched people. This would be traveling to some location uh, in the world um, and attempting to uh, convert those people um, to the Christian faith. Yeah. So conversion Um, seems really important to that discussion, that description. Yes. Yeah. So I, I I consider myself an evangelical expat, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and that I still hold a a lot of very warm feelings for the faith community, um, in which I was raised. Uh, but I don't adhere to a lot of that, that theology, uh, that, that I was taught. So for that reason, I, I think I consider myself a, an evangelical expat. Uh, but I grew up, I, I'm going to use that word, the, the word evangelical, uh, the word Pentecostal, and the word charismatic fairly interchangeably. But I grew up in, in what would be considered a Pentecostal church uh, or charismatic church. Um, and there are uh, sort of three general groupings of 
of Pentecostal churches. Uh, there, there are nine or ten Pentecostal denominations, you know, where the, the name of the church is, you know, thus and such Pentecostal church. There are also uh, churches that are just one-off random churches that someone started uh, somewhere where the name of the church is, is you know, thus and such Pentecostal church. They may not be connected to a larger denomination. They may not be connected to a larger denomination, yeah. Um, and then there are, uh, at least in America, there are uh, a small handful of, of individuals um, who 70, 80 years ago uh, came to, to some amount of power uh, in their faith and started a church uh, which grew to the size where they uh, determined that it was best that they start other smaller churches, either in the area or around the country. Uh, a lot of these folks uh, started Bible colleges or, or uh, training schools of some kind, and then the graduates of those schools would go off and start churches uh, in other parts of the world. But everyone was sort of tied to that original individual or that original church uh, that existed. Um, and so, so these are, these are folks, uh, for those of you who know, you've heard of uh, perhaps Oral Roberts, uh, or Kenneth Copeland. Those, these are people who in the, the late 30s, early 40s, um, you know, had a conversion experience to Christianity, and, and they, uh, they followed a, a more uh, Pentecostal or charismatic theology, uh, and they started a church. It grew to a certain size. Oral Roberts, I'm sure that we've all heard of Oral Roberts University. Mm -hmm. um, they have a training school or Bible college or seminary. I'm not sure exactly what they call it. Um, but then graduates of that school have gone off and started other churches, but everyone sort of adheres back to that original Oral Roberts church and that theological vein, that tradition, um, and all of these individuals and their theological veins, they're all Pentecostal and charismatic, uh, they all call themselves Pentecostal or charismatic, um, but they all have just mildly different tweaks in their theology and in the practice of their theology, um, so I grew up in a church that was uh, along was started by um, people who adhered to the uh, the theology or or the the church vein of uh, a gentleman named Kenneth Hagen, um, and the the movement that he started is called the Word of Faith movement, um, and they consider themselves a, a Pentecostal or a charismatic uh, church. They they follow that theology, but there's a very specific vein that they run in uh, when it comes to that, that theology. Um, and as I've described, Kenneth Hagin, he was an itinerant preacher back in the 40s and founded a church in, in Oklahoma and a, a training school, and uh, people attended that church and went off, or attended that training school, went off all over the world and started churches. So would you say that part of growing up in that denomination or that, that kind of a church that evangelism was very strongly, that was an important tenet of, of your faith. That evangelism was? Yeah. Yes. Yes, certainly. So one, one of the, the, the legs of the table, so to speak, would have been a, a evangelism. Um, and by that we mean, um, you know, conversion, con trying to convert people either from not, not practicing a faith to Christianity or practicing some other faith to Christianity. So that's the that's the background that I come from, and I, I feel like this conversation will be helped by us discussing sort of a theological context that goes behind that faith tradition. 
Is that does that sound like a good place, or do you not want to touch on that right no, now? No, that's yeah. So that would be our religion road that we're that we're on in this intersection. So my understanding is that a lot of mission is stemmed out of the Great Commission. Yes. Where Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all people, mm-hmm. baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that would be, I think, for anyone who comes from a, an evangelical faith tradition, you've heard that verse a million times from the pulpit in Bible studies. Um, and that that is sort of the central uh, verse um, that that people in that faith tradition use to support their practice of going to other places in the country, to talking to people in their town, to their co-workers, to people that they attend school with, um, about um, what their salvation status is, for another lack of a better way to, to phrase that. The, 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 this all hinges on, on the, the theological concept of um, when does salvation occur, um, and I know different faith traditions have uh, different views on that and different theologies on that. But for for the the faith tradition that I, that I grew up in, um, salvation occurred when you performed a particular act, uh, when you prayed what they call, call would call the sinner's prayer. So specific uh, set of words, um, you, you know, that followed a, a particular path. Um, and when someone out loud prayed that prayer uh, that, that we called the sinner's prayer, at the end of that prayer, we would consider that the moment of salvation. That someone, um, boy, we're digging deep here too, because now we're talking about <laughs> the, the idea of uh, when you die, going to heaven or going to hell. Yeah. Well, like, I was going to say, a very rudimentary way of understanding that is that until you said those words out loud, you were going to hell. But now that you said the right words, like some sort of abracadabra, you can hear a little bit of judgment in my voice. Uh, so just to counteract that, to put things in context, a when you hear about Reformed theology, um, which is a lot of your Protestant denominations, um, there is a pretty strong belief that salvation occurred when Jesus died on the cross. And that we sort of start to back into this idea of salvation is earned or salvation is 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 given by grace. So can you can you earn your own salvation? Is there anything you can do to take get rid of your salvation? Like if you mess up bad enough, will God say, I don't know, maybe not. So those are two different perspectives. So which I will say that that perspective for me when I started attending and learning reformed theology was was such a mind-blowing um theological concept that salvation occurred when Jesus died on the cross um it it completely it, it completely reformed my <laughs> hence the word well look at that reformed <laughs> my conception of of who I was uh spiritually you know um so, so to, to get back to the, the, that this evangelical theology, you know, we're, we're talking about um, the, the phrase they would use uh, is, is saving souls. The, what that meant was, have you prayed that specific sinner's prayer? Um, and at the end of it, 
you know, then you had your moment of salvation. Um, so that, that was the question that, you know, someone in that faith tradition would ask, have you been saved? Um, and uh, by extension, then, uh, someone's job when it came to evangelizing or, or being an evangelist, uh, someone's job is to save souls. Um, so a, a missionary or an evangelist would make it their goal at, at any cost to go out there uh, and get as many people as possible to pray the sinner's prayer, thus so, saving souls. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked, or I've mentioned on the podcast, the way in which we think about evangelism as an end justifies the means type idea, mm-hmm. where it, it, the the end is saving souls and how you get there doesn't really matter. But it, it also strikes me as such an interesting thing that there is this fascination with numbers, yeah, which seems like a very American thing to me. But this idea where, you know, how many, as, as a preacher, as a pastor, oh, how many people attend your church? How many people do you have in worship? Uh, and the same thing we have heard people say, oh, you know, 3,000 people came to know Jesus at this tent meeting, yeah. or we went on a mission trip and we saved 200 souls, or, yeah. you know, we had 50 people come down during the altar call. Oh, yeah, the altar call. Oh, yeah, the altar call. I was at, uh, last time I heard an altar call, it was just a few months ago, I was at a funeral. They had an altar call at a funeral. That was an interesting experience. Yes. But for those of you who have, have grown up in uh, that that Christian evangelical tradition, you're familiar with that moment at the end of a church service where there's the altar call. Come, the, come down to the altar, pray this prayer, come to know Jesus, or the infamous rededicate your life yes, to Jesus or rededicate if you've your, yes. gone the different way. Yep. I have uh, a little moment of road rage when I think about using a funeral and the implications of praying P-R-E-Y-I-N-G on the emotional grief that people are going through. If you ever want to see your loved one again yeah. in heaven, you might as yeah. well. Oh, I, oh that well, makes me mad. But that, that gets exactly back to your conversation about the ends justifying the means. Yeah. All that matters is can we add one more number to the the tally of people who have prayed the sinner's prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So, Andrew, talk a little bit about your experience of that as a teenager. So one of the, you know, one of the other verses that just get, gets pounded into your head in that um in that evangelical context um is the the verse in Isaiah uh and I I honestly don't know the scriptural context for this. I just know the verse. And so perhaps this is a, a wonderful, maybe not wonderful, but a terrible moment of proof texting. But I just know that verse, you know, where someone the, the Lord says um, you know, whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Uh, and I said, you know, send me, I will go, or something like that is, is how the verse goes. But that verse just gets pounded into you, um, or got pounded into me, at least. Um, and that idea of uh, of God calling us as humans on the earth um, to go out there and evangelize, to go out into the world and evangelize, and the only people that, that, that God needs us to do that, that we are the ones who will do it. Um, that, that concept of harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Uh, that's another big phrase in, in that tradition. Yeah. That there are so many people out there who need to be saved. There are so many souls to be saved. And they can't be until you, sitting there in that church pew, go out and do that. Yeah. So that, that idea of send me, I will be the one to go do that. Perhaps this is me, uh, you know, still being blinded by something, but I still feel that that concept, that phrase of send me is a selfless one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will be the one to go out and serve to do that. Sure. Um, well, and <clears throat> when you think about that Isaiah passage, it, proof texting in the very best sense of the word or the concept is the idea that someone is being sent by God to do something. So the proof texting part is it is is it evangelizing? Because Isaiah was a prophet long before Jesus. So yeah. the idea of being sent to talk about Jesus and Isaiah talking about that, that's a little convoluted. But there's plenty of ways in which here I am, send me to go out and do justice. Here I am, send me to go out and serve God's people. So that's a that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And you can adjust it to your particular context, which is fine to do if we understand that we're adding that layer of our own experience and our own agenda to that particular scripture. Yeah, yeah. So to, to get back to your question, um, I, I think additional cultural context is important. Um, that uh, I grew up in, in that faith tradition as a, uh, a young kid and a teenager in the 80s and 90s. And, and during that time period, um, American Christianity uh, created it, this, this massive, uh, all-encompassing subculture that, um, that took over everything. There was Christian music. There was Christian movies. There was Christian clothes. Um, there, were, uh, there were Christian heroes, you know, we didn't read comic books. I remember having a, a comic book as a child where Chuck Colson, Nixon's uh, bag man, was a hero uh, of this this comic. Which, looking back on it now, is such a crazy thing <laughs> to have to have owned as a little kid <laughs> that I owned a Chuck Colson <laughs> comic book. But still, I mean, at that time period, he had recently had a spiritual conversion in prison. Um, and written books, and and that was, you know, so he was a hero, uh, so to speak, of of the movement, um, and so this 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 massive cultural uh, machine that existed around American Christianity and specifically American evangelical Christianity at the time, um, obviously drifted over into this one leg of our table of evangelism of of. Uh, you know, being, um, being the one who gets sent to go out and save souls. Obviously, that machine uh, drifted over into that realm. And so, you know, from a very young age, we were taught the, the stories of, of past missionaries, of past preachers, of past individuals, evangelical uh, individuals who had gone out there. Um, so names like uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Um, they were uh, missionaries who were in the Amazon rainforest, um, you know, pre quote, preaching the gospel to tribes people in the Amazon. Yeah. There's um, a book about their experience. Is that Through the Gates of Splendor? Is that the... That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. um, but these are people, you know, who, who were... 
they were held up as, you know, extremely uh, important. Uh, uh, well, going back to heroes, they were held up as heroes of our American evangelical Christian faith. Uh, John G. Lake was another big one in my church, and I, I remember as a young kid having a book uh, on Hudson Taylor that I read over and over again. I wanted to be Hudson Taylor when I grew up. He was a, a missionary, a British missionary that uh, went off to China and lived in China for, I don't know, 60 years or something, but wore, this is back in the 1800s, wore Chinese clothes, spoke Chinese. You know, this is actions that were bizarre for a, a Brit to take during that time period. Canonized. When canonized. A, when a, someone becomes a saint, it's the going through the process of canonization. Beautiful, yes. So these are people who were on their way to canonization in, in, our, uh, in our faith community. Um, it's so interesting because I think about the church where you grew up that I got to attend before you and I got married and the ways in which there was this sense of God first, God, God is the most important and putting anyone or anything before God was so bad. And yet these people are made into idols in their own way. I can see that. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I mean, that's an outsider perspective. Yeah. But. No, I can certainly see that. But I, I think, at least I hope it's easy to tell, you know, when you're raised in that cultural tradition with these a certain set of heroes that you look up to, that's who you aspire to be as you grow up. That's how you aspire to act as you grow up. And so when you're given the opportunities to act in that particular way or to behave in, in those certain ways, you take those opportunities because it's the thing you've always uh, grown up wanting to do. So to go along with this cultural machine that was 80s and 90s American evangelical Christianity, um, there came along a, a series of groups or companies or ministries, whatever you want to call them, uh, that did or hosted teen missions. Okay. And they would, you know, you'd, you'd pay money and you'd get together in a group and you'd go travel to some place, and you'd do evangelism. You would try to, say, quote, save souls. And then you would come back. And that was your teenage mission trip in my faith community, you know, in my tradition. Uh, so uh, some of you may have heard of, of some of these names. There were companies like Youth with a Mission. I think some of these places still exist. But uh, YWAM, they were called, Youth with a Mission. Um and Teen Missions International, I think it was called, was another one. TMI. TMI, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I think that's what it was called. But these were, you know, these were groups where you paid money, and they brought you on the, they organized the trip, they brought you on the trip, they brought you back. You had gone on your mission trip. So I'm sure you had to do some fundraising of your own to be able to afford something like that. Sure, yes. Yeah. So the, the one that, um, that my particular church glommed onto was called Teen Mania. Teen Mania Ministries, um, run by uh, a company out of Texas, uh, outside of Dallas or something like that. Um, that Tyler, Texas. Ron Luce, right? Yeah, yes, Ron Luce was the head of that. So it, it was a, they did a great job of, of working you through the Teen Mania system, so to speak. So they had, uh, you know, t-shirts and resources and you know, videos, all kinds of stuff, and they would feed it to your youth group. And so you're in church, and you're absorbing all of this teen mania material. Uh, then they would have these large gatherings. So they would they would rent out a stadium, uh, and they would get thousands and thousands of 
youth group or our teenagers, you know, so a bunch of different youth groups to come to the stadium and they'd put on like a weekend long conference. So, so that was acquire the fire is what it was called. Um, and their big thing was we need to be on fire for Jesus. And so every it's like a sports mentality almost. It is almost like a sports mentality. So you know, you'd get together in this stadium, there'd be five thousand teenagers and, you know, a hundred upset adults who were there. <laughs> they're poor youth pastors. Those poor youth pastors. <laughs> um but they'd get, you know, people to come in and preach and they'd get the big name Christian bands at the time to come and play music. Uh, Is and that your Five Iron Frenzy? And yeah, so your 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 Five Iron Frenzies and your Supertones and your Newsboys. Ah, uh, the Newsboys. Um, and your Audio Adrenalines, you know, all of those yes. classic uh, 90s. Reliant K. Your Reliant Ks. So yeah, all those classic 90s um, Christian uh, bands, Christian musicians. Um, so you'd, you'd show up to these big stadiums and you'd have all these people who were uh, you know, your age, and they were all on fire for Jesus. It was a big emotional uh, event. You, you get to go to a concert of some of your favorite musicians, and they play all your favorite songs. And then the preachers would come up, and they'd preach, and they'd tell you things, that there'd be altar calls up the wazoo. <laughs> um, and they'd, they'd funnel you through this whole weekend, and then close to the end of the weekend, they would say, oh, we've got this next experience. If you want to take the next step, in the acquire in the teen mania process, we've got mission trips that you can go on, um, and so they they would have these big, uh, thick booklets with lots of you know they were they were awesomely '90s stylized, big pictures and everything of all the countries you could go travel to on one of their teen mission trips, um, and they'd have people who had been on teen mission trips come up and and talk about them. Y- you know, now looking back on it now, I almost feel like I was buying a. Uh, uh, a timeshare, you know, I got, <laughs> Pyramid I, got scheme? <laughs> I got, I got set into this, this thing, you know, and they ramped me up to, uh, the teen mission trip. Yeah. So, so if we take a quick step away from that, there's some pretty significant mental health implications to that of just the ways in which teenagers are preyed upon to, you know, cause in a general sense, and we're both speaking as white people who had relatively privileged lives you know, grew up with two parents and yeah. healthy homes and things like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, teen- teenagers don't have control over their own destinies in most cases. Yeah, that's true. So there's a lot of preying upon teenagers who are vulnerable. Be- your brain is not fully formed until you're 25 years old. So even just preying on that, that's that feels problematic to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same concept with, with any marketing that's done to teens, right? I mean... Oh sure. You know the the, the teen wants the uh, teens want the newest you know clothing the newest, I guess nowadays the new look at me I'm like old man yelling at cloud <laughs> <laughs> these teens nowadays they want you know the the, the newest electronic and all that kind of stuff you know and and you market those things to teenagers because then the parents or the people who have the money are going to go out and get those things to because they want to you know please their children they want to make their kids happy sure um as you know so it's just really good marketing to teens is what it is you, of course you get them all hopped up on their favorite bands you get them all hopped up on an emotional um you know spiritual level and then you throw this mission trip idea um at them and they were expensive i mean it was it was uh i so i i guess the the end of the story is i ended up going on two teen mania mission trips um i went uh 
both to India. I went in the summer of 97 uh, and the summer of 99, uh, I went. And, and back in those times, they were expensive. I, I think it was five or $6,000 that I had to pay um, for these things. And so that was no small sum back in those days. Sure. Um, and I, I, I just raised the money to be able to do that. I, it, it's possible, it's probably likely that my parents chipped in a, a little bit, but they certainly didn't have uh, the kind of money to, to pay for that. Sure. Um, you know, just as a, a summer trip for me to, to do. But it was a lot of me, you know, writing letters and talking to people and asking people for money. And I went door to door and sold stuff. Um, that was the other thing is they would teen mania. Once you signed up for one of these trips, they would send you a big packet of how to raise money. So there was this big booklet of different ways you could, uh, you could raise money. The the one that I always remember that I never did because it was just so stupid was show up on someone's doorstep with a dozen eggs and say, Hey, if I smash this egg on my head, will you give me $10? What? <laughs> what? Like... Like, yes. here, let me this, humiliate myself this on was, the front door? This was legitimately printed in in a printed material from an organization and sent to a teenager. That. <laughs> and it was it was stupid, so I never did it. But, um, you know, it was just chock full of these, here's here's a way to make $10, $20, and every little $10, $20 adds up to the five or 6000 that you need. Yeah. So I can imagine, as a teenager... You've had all of this marketed to you. You've been emotionally manipulated by these, you know, by Acquire the Fire and these big conferences and stuff like that. So you've signed up now to go on this trip. You've had to raise money and do all of these things. So what what then becomes of the actual process of you've you've raised all the money, you've done all the things, now you're you're getting ready to leave your home. Is there, like, training that you would do before you actually got on the plane to go to <clears throat> India, in your case? Yeah, so there there were, I guess, two functions of what we would call training. What Teen Mania did uh, was essentially pantomimed skits uh, on street corners, and that was our, that was our preaching the gospel. Uh, here's another word that we haven't talked about, witnessing. There you go. Witnessing was the, the that's the word that's used to talk about the conversation you have with someone to try to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. Okay. You witness to them. In your context, that's what in my I'm sorry, in my in my faith tradition, in my context, yes. So that that was their way of witnessing to people, was a uh, pantomimed skit. So there was a, like a audio speaker that would play some sort of music and a, and a narration in the local language. And then us, as a, a series of mostly white kids, would pantomime this skit that, in theory, went along with the narration that we couldn't understand. And we would do that in town squares, on street corners. And uh, then when it was over, some there, there was always local pastors who would uh, travel with us. They would talk to the people who had gathered to watch these Americans come and do this thing. And uh, that would be the end of our, our process there. So at the beginning, you know, before we leave, we obviously have to learn the skit. Okay. So that was that was like half to three quarters of the, the training before we leave at the beginning. Was, so you're learning a skit, but you're not necessarily learning the language of the place where you're going. Correct. Yeah, we got a one page, eight and a half by 11, one page sheet uh, that had 10 to 12 phrases on it. 
that was in the local language. Were any of them the sinner's prayer? None of them were the sinner's prayer. Really? No. no. Interestingly enough, we uh, were supposed to talk to people and actually what what was uh, what was on the was no, it like... no, so it was two sheets. Now you're bringing me back now. So one sheet, the eight and a half by eleven sheet was ten to twelve phrases in the local language. So where is the bathroom? Sure. And then they've written out phonetically how to say where is the bathroom in Tamil or in Canada or in Hindi, where you know, wherever we are. Then there was another half like a half sheet that was an entire paragraph written out phonetically of the, in that same language. And it was essentially a paragraph that said, so you've watched this skit, and I'm going to rehash the skit for you now. Uh, this is what the Christian faith believes. There was a man named Jesus, yada, 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 the whole story of the Gospels. You just yada, yada, yada over the whole Gospel story. <laughs> but, you know, th- this is the story of the Gospel does this interest any of you? Would any of you be interested in essentially converting to Christianity? And if there were people in your group that you were talking to that raised their hand, you were supposed to call the local pastor over, and he would pray the sinner's prayer with them okay. in their language. As someone who has a lot of thoughts and opinions on this whole process, that feels very hopeful to me, that there is not this idea that Americans are are like being parachuted into places where there are non-believers and you're supposed to help them pray and then you like disappear like into back into thin air and there's no one there to support these people in their journey of faith. That that feels remote like there is a lot that's problematic in in the my theology of of that whole description, but the fact that you have local people uh, local pastors, local faith leaders that are going to help these people journey along feels hopeful for me. Yeah. I have other yeah. questions for you, though. One of them is, it feels very much to me the way you describe it as though one of the implications is we need to go to places where there are not Christians, which usually means we need to go to places where there are not white people. I would say 90% of the countries that Teen Mania visited were where brown people were. The other 10% were former Soviet bloc nations. Okay. So you could go to, you know, they probably didn't go to Bosnia at that point because the, you know, the war was so fresh, but you could go to Romania. Okay. You know. And the people who are participating, your fellow mission trip travelers, are they mostly white? Yes. Yeah. They, I would say they're mostly white. So there, I mean, there's definitely, the, one of the big problems I had with doing this, th- this whole thing um, and it, I don't know why it never dawned on me the first trip, but it definitely dawned on me the second time I went to India was the colonial feeling that I got. I was certainly the white guy that was coming in, and I was the draw. I was the reason people were showing up. Hey, there's a white kid with blonde hair. Let's go look at him. But then there was just there was a way that pastors and, and, and local uh, faith leaders in, in these Indian communities would behave that felt like they were lifting us up as examples to the people who lived in in that community. Like, for some reason, we were better Christians. We we were the model of of how to live Christianity, of how to be Christians. Um, And that always felt problematic to me. Yeah. So that, I mean, colonialism, that's certainly something to be considerate of when we think about the mental health implications of the othering 
we need to go help these other people. These, oh, let me take some of my privilege, some of my power, and and deign to offer it and my attention to these poor, unfortunate brown people. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll, I'll be honest, when I was fundraising to, to go on these trips, I, I received some very valid questions that I didn't have answers to. I didn't have the language or the the cognition to be able to answer them about, hey, there's people in America that need help. Why are you traveling halfway across the world to do this when there's people in your own country that, that need help? Um, so that's where my mission experience happened when I was in high school was I, I, I very much came from, and I remember my mom feeling very strongly about the ways in which we needed to take care of the people that were right around us, right in our midst, yep. and that we didn't have to go to the projects, we didn't have to go to a third world country to to, to do that, that there was very much a let's take care of, of the people in our midst. And there's, there's some problematic ways of thinking about that too, and that, that othering and that exclusionary nature, but the, the ways in which my mission experience as a teenager was... Let's let's take care of the people here in our country. Let's take care of things. And certainly as a as a young youth pastor, that was my mentality of let's see if we can go somewhere where we can have a connection. So you mentioned us traveling to Katrina, uh, to to the Gulf Coast to help after Hurricane Katrina. We did that because we were connected to a particular family who had lost their home in the hurricane. Yeah. So yeah. that was that connection doesn't you're you're, go, you're going you didn't maintain any kind of connection with the people that you met. Uh, I I did not, but I will say one of the things, um, and and I credit my my family for raising me this way. One of the things that I got the most out of the trip was the the time that I took away from doing the the teen mania ascribed uh, actions. The you know what I was supposed to be doing. And, and I would take the time away to try to just spend time and get to know someone who lived wherever we were at that point. You know, if there was a, if there was a group of the boys, a group of boys in the village that were doing something to try to, to sit down and just spend some real time with them to get to know them a little bit. That's, those are the memories that I take, the positive memories that I take away from those experiences. So you say positive as though there are some negative feelings. So why don't you delve into some of the problematic things from those trips? Yeah. So uh, I don't know if <clears throat> if any of you have traveled. I, I should say, if anyone who's listening is American, and I know you have lots of international listeners, um, as Americans, it's very easy for us to travel to European nations or to nations that are you know, European, former, former European colonies, largely dominated by European languages, things like that. It's easy. It doesn't feel as difficult to travel to those countries. Uh, but for those of you who have traveled to a non-European country, I'm going to call it, uh, and experienced the um, complete cultural difference that some of these other countries have from, from the American experience, um, there, there's quite a shock to your your mental and emotional system. There's a reason that we have the phrase culture shock. Um, there's quite a, a shock to your system to spend time in a culture that is so radically different uh, from your own. 
Team Mania really had no way to uh, deal with people who were feeling disconnected from their own personal reality or feeling homesick or anything like that. Their 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 solution was let's send the person home. There there was no let's deal with what we're the issue that this person this young person is experiencing in country. It's your parents are paying for a ticket for you to go home now. You're getting on a plane. You're flying home tomorrow. Wow. Um, and I know there, there were kids that were sent home while I was there, both, you know, both times. Uh, and, you know, they were, I, I wouldn't say, look, looking as an adult, looking at teenagers that I know, I wouldn't call them difficult kids. They were just the kids who needed a little bit more, you, you know, care. So it wasn't a and, disciplinary thing. It was genuinely a, we don't know what to do with you. Yeah. Yes. It was a, it's just going to be easier for us if you go home. Wow. Yeah. So I would really love to, to, I mean, not love because it sounds like I would enjoy it. I would be really interested to hear what the experience of some of these young people that were just sent home um, when they were going through the things that they were going through. Um, but that being said, Team Mania had no ability to help us become culturally acclimatized to what we were experiencing. And then at the end of the trip, they had absolutely no ability or interest uh, in helping us reacclimatize to being back in America, um, I, I struggled a, a huge amount, uh, mostly a- after my second trip, um, with trying to come back and and feel uh, a sense of attachment, feel um, like I belonged back in my hometown, in you know, in my in my house, in my school. How um, long were you got? How long were these trips? Uh, they were. F- Four, five weeks, something like that. I think about it was, a month. I think it was five weeks from like the day I left home to the day I came back home, okay. something like that. So there's, you know, there's lots of plane flying and traveling in between there. But they had absolutely no ability to to deal with, or 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 they didn't want to have to deal with what kids were experiencing when they came back to America. Um, and I have seen this in other teenagers that I know who have gone on international mission trips. That what they experience and the feelings that that come out from them when they come back to America. Um, they need to be culturally reacclimatized. They need to be debriefed. They need to be given counseling. This is what you experienced. You know, this is why you're feeling the way you're feeling. This is what y- you've gone through. Um, y- y- this sounds a little dramatic, but it, 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 you could almost consider it a, a sort of a PTSD type of thing. You know, there's certainly, I don't know that I would call it trauma necessarily, but there's certainly an injury um, that, these people experience coming back into America, having been on some um, international mission trips. And, and certainly in the 90s, these groups had no ability to deal with this or, or desire to deal with it. Um, and I don't know that, that teen mission trip, that these companies that run teen missions are doing that now either. So it's really, that, that furthers that idea of that capitalist evangelism, saving souls, the end justifies the means. We have to... We're going to use these teenagers. We're going to manipulate them through marketing techniques. We're going to take them somewhere, use them to help us save souls. And it doesn't matter. Like, if they're not helping us save souls, then we're going to send them back. And when we're done saving souls at the end of the trip, that's the end of our responsibility. Like, It is a system that churns some kids up and spits them out. And some kids, I'm sure, had a wonderful time and they have nothing but great memories from their trips. Um but it certainly does uh, have an impact on on some other kids. Yeah. 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 So there's some pretty significant mental health implications to 
the, the way that these organizations did things. I think another mental health thing implication that I consider is the ways in which there are the, the othering. Pa- Paula loves to use other as a verb. The ways in which people are othered on these trips. So we need to save these other people who are not believers in Jesus, who are not saved. We need to go to this foreign land. We need to do this. And, and they, they are seen as less than because they don't know Jesus. But the expectation is that they know Jesus the way that you know Jesus, the way, the way that that Kenneth Hagin word of faith movement idea pushed things, which is a very specific kind of Christianity. Because one of the things you said early on that I wanted you to clarify is a, a different kind of Christian. Were you, were you ever going to places to try and convince people who may have already heard about Jesus or who may already be Christian, but be a different kind of Christian that you were trying to? Um, I, I never personally did, but that was certainly a concept that uh, was prevalent in the in the faith tradition that I grew up in. That there was a, a there was one right way to be a Christian, and other people also said they were Christians, but they weren't necessarily doing it the right way. And because of that, we weren't we're not quite sure what their status what their spiritual status is. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I don't I don't know that I ever you know, remember hearing an outright, oh, you know, this the, this and such denomination is going to hell, that kind of thing. But it, there was always just a question mark about what are, the, what are these people's spiritual status? Are they real Christians? Yeah, yes, that kind of thing. And, and, I, and I'm sure that, you know, that idea is not restricted to the faith tradition I grew up in. I'm sure there are many faith traditions that feel that way. Sure. Well, so if we think about who's driving in terms of power and control, there's definitely that movement, the part of that movement. So teen mania buying into uh, the the word of faith, Kenneth Hagin type type mentality, the, the saving souls at any cost and witnessing, that's a, that's a particular kind of power that's being enforced by a particular religious leader and then in addition by the community around that's built around that religious leader well i i want to be clear about a couple of things um i wouldn't say that teen mania ascribed to the same faith tradition that i grew up in okay um what i'm what i'm hoping to to show with what i've been saying is that all of these various elements create a system of evangelism um that uh, operated, you know, e- each individual group operated independently of each other, but all all pushed together, you created an oppressive system or a potentially oppressive system um, where the only goal was, as you've said, uh, r- racking up that tally of numbers on how many souls have been saved. Yeah. Um, and so Teen Mania had its own faith, uh, you know, system that it would ascribe to. And, and the Word of Faith movement had its own faith system that it would ascribe to. But all of these different uh, groups added up to this larger uh, system sure. that, that existed in the world at, at that time and, and may still exist to some degree. But I, I want to go back to a, a previous thing that you were um, talking about, uh, about that othering of people. Yeah. The othering of people in, in you know, countries across the world and, and things like that. Um, I, I agree with everything you said, but I want to add to that that part of that othering was also taking away those individuals' agency 
to make their own spiritual choices, to, uh, to follow their own particular spiritual or faith journey. Um, at Teen Mania, one of their big things, one of the things they were really huge on is that this, this act of witnessing this, uh, this, this goal, these trips we would make to save souls, that it was a battle. They were really big into this war mentality, that we were, we were soldiers in the Lord's army, that everything was, that this was a war that needed to be fought, so that these other people um, who needed to be saved, they couldn't save themselves. They had no agency to save themselves. That's problematic. It, it is problematic in a number of ways. And, it, and I, uh, to be honest, I think that it's that attitude that, well, un, uh, amongst uh, many things, but it, that attitude helped contribute to the, their downfall eventually. But that concept that this was a war that needed to be fought, and we were the soldiers to do it, and we were the ones who could win, and these other people um, had no ability to help themselves. Yeah. It was only if we went over there. So that also, I'm sure, plays into like the boot camp mentality as you're preparing of being soldiers in the Lord, Lord's army and you have to say these certain things and this is a very militaristic. Yeah, and, and part, of that, um, part of that mindset, that militaristic, that battle mindset, uh, is that these trips that we would go on were very, they, they were roughing it to the, the nth degree. You know, you were, you were in a war... And so we, we literally would go to these places and they would ship over to, to our country MREs, used MREs, not used, but old MREs, and that's what we would eat. So and we the, literally ate army rations while on the, quote, mission field. MRE being meal ready to eat. Yes. Like an army ration. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so th- th- there was that. There was, you know, there's a, and this whole concept is... You know, it's a battle, and there's only one right, white, right way. <laughs> white way. Ooh. There's look, a look little slip, slip there. there. There was only one right way to fight a battle. There's only one right way to evangelize, to witness to people. Yeah. And it's got to be hard, and it's got to be tough, and it has to hurt, and you have to sacrifice physically and emotionally and spiritually to do this. You know, just the, the same types of things that you would think of in an army recruitment video. That's what this was. So you got to go... So you and I really love Indian food. So you got to go to a country as a teenager. Did you actually get to eat actual Indian food? Or were you just eating MREs and... Um, Because... I can think of one time in both trips where I ate some Indian food. It was mostly just rice with a little bit of curry on the side. But that's it. It was basically MREs and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Well, they can't yeah. immerse you to, like, I mean, physically, I imagine, if some people had a cultural shock and that took them out of the being in the skid or being able to witness or evangelize, they wanted to keep you as, they didn't want to immerse you too much in that other culture. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I guess. Oh my gosh, that's so problematic. Yeah, I guess you're right. That goes back to that point of being bad at culturally, at properly culturally immersing someone. If you... You know, if you completely refuse to allow them to immerse themselves in that culture. Yeah. 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 So a, a, a moment of road rage for me comes from the idea of not only are you taking away these people's agency, but there's such a lack of respect for what they might actually need. Yeah. So, so there's a book out that uh, many of you may have heard of called Toxic Charity, where I, I would say this really fits into that toxic charity. I agree. I would also say that there are times when group work camps 
you know, which we mentioned at the beginning of the episode is this positive way of doing things is also some toxic charity. But toxic charity states that um, doing mission work for the sake of doing mission work is toxic. And that the best way to serve a community is to be culturally immersed in the community, to be a part of the community and to listen to the community and what the community needs. Had you gone to India to say, you know, Later on in your life, you went to India with a different organization that focused on drilling, drilling for uh, they, yeah, wells. Yeah, they, they would drill water wells, yes. So um, that was a beautiful way of what does this particular community need? They need access to clean water. Yeah. We're going to raise money. We're going to go over there and we're going to help them accomplish it and sort of equipping the people there. Yeah. So Toxic Charity says that that's the way to do things is for white people... This isn't necessarily what Toxic Charity says. This is my spin on it. But for white people to come alongside others, say, what is it that you need? How can we use our power and our privilege to help you and support you? And then empowering them versus what you did when you were in high school, which was to go to not immerse yourself at all, to say this, what you need is to be saved. Well, and and that concept of, of what I went through adds to the colonialism feeling that I I got from that, you know, that we're not, we weren't coming alongside someone and helping them on the journey that they wanted to follow, that we were just imposing upon them the way things should be done, imposing upon them the way faith should be done, the way witnessing should be done, you know, all of that stuff. So one of the things Paul and I like to do on our episodes is talk about U-turns and the ways in which we would hope people would maybe adjust their points of view to a, to a less problematic way. So I mentioned your trip as an adult to India, which is one of my favorite things because that was the trip where you decided you need to ask me to marry you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, of course. I yes. mean... <laughs> yes, that was it. That wasn't the only reason that you went. Yes, we can edit it. this part out. But um, that that idea that you were listening to the needs of the people in the particular village in India where you traveled, they needed access to clean water. And so you did the work with this wonderful ministry to be able to go over and 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 help them. Yeah. So I would say one of my U-turns is for people to start doing more of the work of listening. What are the needs? Doing a I would call it a cultural exegesis, listening to the needs of the community and yeah. determining what is it that the community needs, not what do I want to do? How can I use my vacation to go help people that are less fortunate than yeah. me? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of your U-turns? So I do have one in mind, um, and we we talked about this, I think, mostly at the beginning of the podcast and, and maybe interspersed throughout, but it's the idea that I personally am responsible for the salvation of other people out there in the world. Um, you know, being taught from a very young age that that concept of, uh, as it says in Isaiah, who you know, who will go, I will go, send me, um, and that concept that uh, that sort of military concept that people don't have the agency to save themselves, that they can only come to know Jesus, that they can only experience. Uh, their journey with God if I am the one to go out there and tell them about that. That means that if I don't do that, that that person will never have that experience. That that person 
will never come to know Jesus. <laughs> that that person will that person could potentially live the rest of their life in pain because I didn't go out there and do what needed to be done. I'm sorry. So that's messed up to put all that kind of pressure on someone whose brain is not fully formed yet. <clears throat> yes. But that's what I took in as a as a young sensitive kid. That's what I I took in from my faith tradition and from what I was taught. And I can't necessarily say that that's what was intended by the people who taught me that. But that that's the most painful part of what I experienced going through this, um, is that these people would be lesser or be hurt because I didn't do something. Um, so for me, I guess, the U-turn, this is why I can't be objective about this. The U-turn would be the, uh, a significant change in theology. Yeah. Um, and, and we really can't ask people to just have a significant change in theology. But I do think that it's probably worth for, for people to consider what these types of theologies, what impact these types of theologies have on the people who are supposed to be the ones, you know, doing the serving. We often think about these types of theologies and how they will impact the unchurched or, you know, the unsaved, so to speak. But we don't think about what impact are they going to have on the people who are doing the serving, the people who are uh, consistently attending church or, you know, doing the things that they should do. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So as, as our final thoughts, when we put it in park, what I would say is that there are a lot of ways in which mission trips of, of the kind that you experienced as, as a teenager put a lot of emphasis on the act of salvation. On, and, and, and it's a particular prayer that is prayed it, it's something that you have control over. And what I didn't hear you talk a lot about, which may, we may have just glossed over because we're trying to fit this into an hour-long episode, but is is having an actual relationship with Jesus, is actually developing a, a journey of faith. And so my, yep. my put it in park is how much of, how much pressure is put on people to have this, this one act that is such a very small part of what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. It, you know, it, to use a metaphor, when we're reading the gospels, yes, all four gospels mention when Jesus walked up to the disciples and said, will you, will you come and follow me? But it was like three or four verses of so much more of the story of, of what Jesus did with his life and his ministry and the ways in which he served people, which had a lot to do, not just with what they believed spiritually and the health of their soul, but their physical health and their emotional health and their ability to belong to a community. So, so to put it in park for me, following Jesus is about all of those things, not just about one of those things. And for me personally, there's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation. That's, that's another, another difficult thing. But if you were to put it in park, Andrew, for your final thoughts, how would you want to leave our roadies? Yeah, and so when, when I think about that concept, I think about how uh, how self-involved my mission work was. You know, obviously, it's obvious that that's caused me some amount of pain to have the, the theological, to, to, to have the theology that I did. Uh, but 
I also that that theology also underpinned the idea that I was the one who was important in someone else's faith journey. Mm-hmm. That I was the one that I was I was important enough. You know, it was God and then me and then this person um, in their faith journey. And so for me, putting it in park is is all about how much can I take myself out of someone else's faith journey? How much can I facilitate someone's journey towards God or journey with God without me being present in that, without me having a hand in that at all? My hope has been that I've lived a, a life of action rather than a life of of witness or speaking or going out on street corners and performing, you know, pantomimes or whatever. Thank you for willingly, you can't emphasize this enough, this was not, uh, you were not forced to do this as my spouse. Thank you for willingly sharing this and being vulnerable. And I don't know if anyone's noticed, but I've slowly been tapping out SOS on the table Stop as it. we've been recording this. <laughs> No, thank you for thank you for having me. Um Paula, we send you love and prayers. We hope your week has gone well. Yes. Um, and Rodies, we really appreciate all of the opportunities we have to interact with you. However you feel about this episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you have your own experiences of mission or your own thoughts, please feel welcome to reach out to us. There's lots of ways that you can do that. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Sacred Intersections Podcast. We're on Twitter at Sacred Pod. You can also check out our website where you can listen to episodes and leave comments and things like that. That is sacredintersectionspodcast.com. But we are grateful for you and we look forward to having Paula with us again for our next episode in a couple of weeks. And so as Paula would normally say, Safe travels through all of your sacred intersections. Woohoo! <laughs>